we don't need a completely new regulatory system for crypto. We have the tools in place. There's one end of the spectrum where the idea is we need something completely new. I'm not there. But I'm also not where maybe the SEC sometimes is, which is what we have is good enough. I do think we need more clarity. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with another All Things Investigations interview. And today I have Amina Hassan. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun today because we're going to talk about one of the most unbelievable stories in recent fraud history, the FTX scandal. Amina, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Amina, I often tell civilians, i.e. non-lawyers, about cases I'm involved with, with the FCPA or other fact patterns, and they just look at me and said, you made that up. No one would do something that stupid. And this one really, the most since Enron, that's the most unbelievable to me. And we're, of course, talking about FTX and everyone's new best friend, SBF. But before we get there, can I ask you to tell us a little bit about the nature of your current practice? Sure. So I am in the Use Hubbard litigation department. I joined Use Hubbard right out of law school and have been here since. I do primarily litigation, but in certain areas, uh, parallel to that, I do a lot of counseling to help clients avoid litigation. So I end up doing a lot of investigations. And in the crypto world, I've been doing a bunch of litigation, so class action securities litigation the last few years. But at the same time, I've been helping clients navigate, I guess is the best way, the very uncertain regulatory and enforcement landscape that we have in the U.S. around that. So that in a nutshell is me. So, I mean, it would be fair to say you're typically on the civil side of things as opposed to the criminal side? Definitely. I'm your civil person, not your criminal person. We have awesome people here who will help you navigate the SPF tobacco on the criminal side. I can help you with the civil and enforcement side. Let's explore that. Could you start off by telling us what is or perhaps was FTX and who is Sam Bateman-Fried? Yes. So FTX was the second largest crypto exchange right after Binance. And when we talk of FTX, I think it is important to remember we're not talking about one homogenous entity, right? Or one business entity. It was this sprawling group of entities, over 100 entities. Some of them were in the U.S. Many of them were outside of the U.S. And the mothership, so to speak, was actually in the Bahamas. And what they did was they offered a crypto derivatives exchange, right? So instead of buying and selling Bitcoin or Ether or other coins and tokens, people would actually go to that exchange to buy and sell futures. So they were trading on a margin. That derivatives 
exchange was not actually available to US customers, which is actually something we see a lot in global crypto companies that they are kind of siloed off. Certain things happen only in certain jurisdictions. So in the US, they had a bunch of entities too. And the one that I think gets a lot of attention is FTX US. That's where you could do what's known as spot crypto trading, right? You could actually go and buy and sell Bitcoin or another token, so to speak. That was FTX. It was this sprawling giant global exchange, essentially. So how does Alameda fit into the FTX family? So you asked me one other question before, which I did not answer. Not a good thing when you're responding to a judge. In this case, you are that. So you asked about SPF. SPF is the guy who founded FTX. SPF also co-founded Alameda Research. So Alameda Research was a sister company of FTX. And it's only now that we're finding out how closely related the two were. To some extent, Alameda was one of FTX's biggest customers, but also biggest borrowers. And all of the things happening between FTX and Alameda were happening behind doors. So people, the customers and investors of FTX did not have visibility into it. And that was actually one of the big problems that caused the implosion of FTX, really. One of the things, there are lots of things that struck me, but you talked about the family of corporations. And I think we've seen at least well over a hundred different entities. And essentially money seemed to be just traveled between and through all of the entities in a way that we typically don't see among corporations. Any thoughts on that part of the story? Yes. So one of the takeaways from the FTX debacle is really the complete failure and lack of controls. If we were to kind of put what happened with FTX into a nutshell, essentially they took customer money, they lost it and misused it, and now they don't have customer money to actually give back to the customers. And where that money seemed to have gone, or a lot of it seems to have gone, is to Alameda. So Alameda Research, it turns out, wasn't doing so well financially at some point last year. And SPF and some of his other associates, we've heard these names too, Caroline Ellison, Gary Wang, they decided we'll just take money, FTX customer money, and give it to Alameda to do whatever, whether it was to get more loans for Alameda, whether it was to collateralize loans, but that didn't work. Alameda went down and so did FTX. One of the very important things to note, FTX didn't have internal controls, or they act at least told their clients and their customers we have controls, but they were not implemented as advertised. So one of the most glaring examples that I've come across as we've been getting to know more about FTXs, SPF almost had this cult-like following, right? Like he was everywhere. He was going to the Congress, US Congress, testifying before them. And one of the compelling things about what SPF was saying before all of this happened was he was actually pro-regulation, right? He was suggesting you should regulate the crypto space. And by the way, we FTX are a great example of transparency and so on and so forth. And one of the things that he was selling was that FTX had this automated risk management system. And what they were telling, for instance, regulators in the US is this automated system, it margins all of our futures customers accounts every 30 seconds. And if there's a shortfall, our automated system goes in, liquidates positions, and makes sure that there's enough margin in every customer's futures account. Theoretically, this sounds great and exactly what you would want, except what it turns out is, regardless of how well this automated system was being applied across the board, and we don't even know whether that's true, there were exemptions for Alameda in it. So Alameda was exempted from this automatic liquidation. 
And as a result, it had billions of dollars in negative balance. So that is just one example of the lack of controls or the misapplication of controls that we see in the FTX case. I'm glad you brought up Enron. The other Enron connection here is that Mr. Ray, who is the CEO of the bankrupt entity, he also has an Enron boss, right? Like he oversaw the liquidation of Enron. And it's interesting when one of his first representations to the bankruptcy court in the US is that never in his career has he seen such a complete failure of controls as in the FTX case. Let's turn to the <laughs> SEC because this event seemed to crystallize either criticism of the SEC for not really moving forward in terms of crypto regulation, or at least facilitate a discussion about how regulators should oversee this. Gary Gensler has told us we have regulations in place which deal with this. To me, as some of the fraud seems so basic that I tend to agree with him that really you don't need new SEC regulations to say insider trading is a bad thing and you can't do it. But where do you see the SEC at this point? Are, are we now having the conversation we've needed to have had for some time? And do you see the SEC moving forward in this area? I do think there is a lot of scrutiny on the SEC, right? Could it have done something? Could the regulators have done something to prevent the collapse of FTX and the ripple effects that we're seeing across the crypto and other spaces? The SEC's response to that is we already have a regulatory structure in place and we're going to go ahead and keep enforcing as we have been. I think we're going to see them get more and more aggressive in the crypto space this year. But the point that you bring up, and I agree with you, I do agree that we don't need a completely new regulatory system for crypto. We have the tools in place. There's one end of the spectrum where the idea is we need something completely new. I'm not there. But I'm also not where maybe the SEC sometimes is, which is what we have is good enough. I do think we need more clarity. For instance, there were entities within the FTX family which were regulated. There was an entity in the US which was registered with the CFTC. There were some entities that were money transmitters, so they had their own licenses that they needed to get. But there was a lot happening which was not licensed and there wasn't clear regulation. So I do think it's time to have the conversation of how do we make the existing regulations more robust and clear for the crypto space? Because I do think we need some clarifications which might be very unique to crypto. Because at the end of the day, you know, when we're talking crypto, we're talking about blockchain. Blockchain is source code, right? Like it's zeros and ones. Do you need certain kinds of due diligence for crypto companies which are very unique to them? And let's say don't apply to your usual broker dealer or another financial firm. So I do think it's high time to have that conversation. How do we make existing regulation clearer and more applicable to the crypto space? We focused on the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, but they regulate securities. In many ways, the FTX scandal may not have been securities. It may have been other types of violations. I think you mentioned the CFTC, certainly, or perhaps the FTC, and maybe even the CFPB. Where do you see some of these other agencies playing a role in either the crypto regulation going forward or specifically around FTX? I think SEC has been the U.S. regulatory agency most at the forefront with crypto enforcement up till now. And I kind of think that's going to continue to be the case. If we look at the complaints that the SEC filed against the associates of SPF, so Carolyn Ellison and Gary Wang, they do say FTT, which was FTX's own token, is a security, 
and therefore we get to regulate you, right? So I think that's the approach the SEC is going to take. But at the same time, I do think these other agencies are going to start getting more active. The CFTC has been active, but not as much as the SEC. I just think that as a result of the broad breadth of effects from FTX, all of these agencies are going to start focusing more and enforcing more. So I do anticipate seeing a lot more activity from them. So you've touched on two of my favorite topics, internal controls and red flags. And this is just full of them. But in terms, let me leave internal controls aside for a moment, because I looked early on in this scandal. And from October 2021 up to the bankruptcy, there was nearly a billion dollars of investment made in FTX by what I'm going to call pretty sophisticated investors. It's not Tom and Amana just throwing in $5,000. These were pension funds. These were hedge funds. These were large wealth management funds putting in sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. And when I look to those organizations, I believe firmly and invest money in them from time to time because they perform due diligence. They are looking for red flags, yet FTX was able to get nearly a billion dollars in investment with probably less financial statements than you and I have. Is, was this, is this just a case of FOMO or was something else going on? I think you might have hit the nail on the head. It is very curious. Some of FTX's biggest grad creditors, as far as we know, are these institutional investors who you assume are sophisticated and institutional investors. And I've seen numbers as high as 1.8 billion of money that he was able to raise from them. So a couple of things. It's easy to go back and hindsight kind of say, you know, what were these people doing? I do think if nothing else, the FTX implosion is a very important wake up call for anyone who's invested these in institutional investors that are invested in the crypto space. What was their due diligence? How was it lacking? And what do they need to be doing better? Because it is curious, how was SPF able to basically blindside all of these presumably sophisticated entities? We don't know the story there, but you might have heard these story reports too. It looks like the SEC is now going out to institutional investors, in fact, has been going out to institutional investors of FTX since last year and asking them about, you know, what is the due diligence that you did? But that may connect to another thing that I was talking about is in doing due diligence, diligence in the crypto space, I think we also need to be very careful about, do we know what's happening in crypto? Like, what is the technology? What are the right questions that we should be asking, right? Because unless you know what are the right questions to be asking about the technology, you can't identify your risks and then you can't protect yourself. I'll give you just one example. You need to understand enough about the blockchain to be able to understand there are wallets and then how are the different way your wallets can be kept? They're like hot wallets, which are connected to the internet. And then there are cold wallets, right? Which are offline, not connected to the internet. Cold wallets are less prone to hacking than hot wallets. But you need to be able to understand that technology as an institutional investor, really in any investor to then ask your exchange the question, wait, what are my options? How do you keep my wallets? How can I be more protective than not, right? So I do think one of the consistent themes for me at least is that we need to understand the technology better if we're working in or advising people in the crypto space because we need to understand the limitations of that technology. Let's turn to the aftermath of the collapse of FTX because that to me has been almost as interesting. We've heard terms like crypto winter. 
I'm not going to say that FTX was responsible for the drop in crypto because that had started long before it. It may have put an exclamation mark on it, or it may have drawn the attention of many outside the crypto world. But what does the collapse of FTX mean for its former competitor, Binance, but others in the crypto space, such as Coinbase or even the ubiquitous Bitcoin? The way I've heard some people put it, like, we had the crypto winter, but then with FTX, it's pushed us into the crypto ice age. I don't know how much to put into that, but a couple of things. On the one hand, I am a believer that the underlying technology, the blockchain technology is something important, something good, and can be used very beneficially. And there's all of this noise around it. So I do think that maybe as a result of FTX and then all of the other bankruptcies that it has triggered, all of the litigation it has triggered, there might be a move towards really rethinking how best to use this technology rather than just in kind of a speculative way. That's my hope. I don't know if that's happening, but that's my hope. But what I do know is that one of the after effects of FTX is that a lot of people working in the crypto space, whether it's exchanges like Coinbase and Binance or it's institutional investors, they will need to get with it very quickly because there's going to be so much regulatory focus on them. So they need to see what their controls are, whether they're doing things by the book and what they need to be doing better. I don't believe and I don't want to believe this is the end of crypto or the blockchain more importantly, but I do think everybody needs to get a bit more alert and careful about how they're using the technology. So we talked about some of the regulators who may be looking at this and and moving forward. Do you expect to see some concrete action in terms of rulemaking from the Securities and Exchange Commission in 2023 around crypto? I haven't seen any indication of that yet. I think one of the first statements that Jamin Gensler gave after the FTX bankruptcy was, we have what we need and we're going to continue enforcing. So the SEC has taken a very enforcement-centric approach towards crypto. They go after certain companies, certain crypto. And the one big complaint has been that leaves a lot of uncertainty about overarching application of the securities laws to crypto. I haven't seen any indications yet that we would necessarily see rulemaking, but I do think that's an important conversation to have. One of the very interesting proposals that I read was a question, do we need something like a FINRA, which is kind of specialized and focused on the crypto space? So I do think it's worth having those conversations. I haven't seen any indication yet that we will get that kind of rulemaking from the SEC. I mean, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, your practice at Hughes Hubbard, or the firm more generally, what would be the best place for them to go? So we have a firm website, and you will find me on the firm website, and I'm also on LinkedIn. I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me, and I hope that we might continue this conversation in a later episode. I would love that. Thank you.